You open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. To continue our study through the Gospel of John, it's on page 1055, if you're using a pew Bible. We've been studying through the Gospel of John this year, and uh, the last several Sundays we've been hanging out in John chapter 5 on our journey through this book. And you can consider John chapter 5 in two general halves. Uh, There's a story followed by what you might call a sermon. Uh, The story is verses 1 to 15. Pastor Godwin preached on this several Sundays ago. And uh, it's the story of Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day. And that caused a bit of an uproar because Jesus had done work, quote unquote, on the Sabbath when you weren't supposed to be doing work. And so, in order to explain himself, Jesus lays out this sermon. You might want to call it a discourse. But but anyway, verses 16 to the end of the chapter are his sort of extended response to the healing, and then just other things that he begins to tell about himself. And in this this extended discourse, Jesus says some huge things about himself. He makes enormous assertions about who he is and what he can do, like mind-blowing claims about his identity and his ministry. You know, we, we, we studied this two Sundays ago, verses 19 to 23. He equates himself with God. He claims prerogatives for himself that only God has. You know, for instance, for the father, verse 20, of chapter 5. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Jesus is saying, I know everything the Father's doing because the Father shows it all to me. That's remarkable. Or uh, verse uh, 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. Another dramatic statement of Jesus' power and authority. And then uh, in verses 24 to 30, which we studied last Sunday, He claims that if you want to have eternal life, you have to believe in Him. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. In verse 28, he he goes way over the top. He claims to be the one who will raise the dead and judge the world and either assign people to heaven or to hell forever. Look, verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, which means he's about to say something that you'd be amazed at. But don't be, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He's speaking of himself, the son of man, his voice, and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Who talks like this? Who says things like this? Megalomaniac dictators talk like this, madmen, Charlie Sheen. I mean, you know. Who says ridiculously big things like this? So much for the, the kind of conventional American take on Jesus that he was a, sort of a religious motivational speaker who was trying to get people to just be nice to each other. You know, so much for that. Because here are these, these outrageous, outlandish, enormous claims. And, and when Jesus says things like this, it kind of forces a question. And the question is, is that true or not? You know, it, it's so big, you kind of have to say, is that true or isn't it true? And if it is true, how do I know? 
Jesus is very aware of both the magnitude of what he's saying and the difficulty that we have sometimes in accepting things like this. And so in verses 31 to 47, which is the last bit of the talk, the sermon, and which is what we're going to study today, Jesus shifts the rest of his comments toward laying out proofs, evidences, arguments, or what he calls them, testimonies, in order to help us believe that he is who he says he is. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe it's that, that you're, you're curious, you're interested, you've learned a lot about Jesus studying John with us, but, but you're still not sure. You know, how do I know? This is the postmodern dilemma. <laughs> how do we know and can something be truly known? These are the sort of the questions in the mood of our time that people wonder about. And so Jesus gives testimony. He wants to give evidence of who he is. He wants to show us how we can know that he is who he says he is. So let me read verses 31 to 47. And as I do, just you know, listen along and kind of be mentally noting how many times Jesus either says the noun testimony or the verb testify. It's amazing how many times he uses it. And it lets you know this is what this whole section is about. So I'll read verses 31 to 47, and you follow along and just be making note of that. All right, so verse 31, John chapter 5. Jesus said, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but... I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is putting forward evidence, testimony for us. And, and I think within this, uh, this last bit of the discourse, he gives three main lines of evidence, three elements of testimony, uh, three arguments that who he is claiming to be really is true, that he really is the one who gives eternal life. But, but before we look at those three main lines of evidence, just, I just want to make this quick note that, remember, this evidence is for us. It's not for him, because he had no questions about who he was. Jesus never had a crisis of faith about him being 
the Son of God. He, he knew who he was. He was confident of it. In fact, you know, look at verse 31. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. Yeah, if, if it's just me standing here saying all this, how could you believe me? I, I get it. But, verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Jesus had this inner confidence, this inner testimony that he was the Son of God, that he, he and the Father were one. They had this unique relationship. Even verse 34, he says, not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. So I'm saying this so that you can believe and be saved and have eternal life. And so he gives testimony for our sake. So what are the three testimonies then? What are the three, you want to call them evidences, uh, witnesses to who Jesus is? The first one is, is the testimony of witnesses. That's the first one, witnesses. You know, like in a court, you call witnesses. And witnesses come and they say, I'm here to testify that, that what you're about to hear is true. And the witness that uh, Jesus points to is John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John, he's talking about John the Baptist, not John, the guy who wrote this gospel. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. And you chose to, for a time to enjoy his light, his light. So Jesus is pointing back to John the Baptist. He's like, all right, look, guys, remember John the Baptist? You like John the Baptist, You sent to him, you went to him. I mean, the the whole countryside was going to John the Baptist. You enjoyed John the Baptist. You you liked him. He he taught in a way that was gripping. People were repenting. They were being baptized by John the Baptist. Generally speaking, you believe John the Baptist was a man of God, maybe some kind of prophet, right, right, right? Remember John the Baptist? You enjoyed his light? But remember what John the Baptist was talking about. So so what is it that he was saying? Well, what was he saying? Look back at the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 29. Let's, Let's go back and remember what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29. Here's what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus. John 1, 29. The next day, Jesus saw, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! I always love that. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John had to say. This is the one, John went on, I I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. There's the, the eternal existence of Christ. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit of God come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would have not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is basically saying to, to his hearers, look, you guys were into John the Baptist You believe John the Baptist. You liked him, but what did John say? John was pointing to me. He was pointing to me as the Lamb of God and as the Son of God. So there's one of your testimonies. Don't just believe me. Believe John the Baptist. So, So there's some kind of weird disconnect happening where the people were 
affirming John the Baptist, but not fully believing John's message. They, they, they were into the messenger, but not the message. It's strange, isn't it? It's like a disconnect. They, they didn't get from A to B. They liked A, but they wouldn't go to B. They, they, they saw J- John the Baptist is pointing, look, look. And, and they're not looking where John's pointing. They're just looking at John going, we like you. This is cool. And John's like, no, zzz, over there. It's, it's like when you have little kids and you're trying to you know, point something out to them. Like, oh, look, kids, a deer, a deer. And they, just can't, they never see it. They're like, what? You know, they're looking at you. Where, Daddy, where? It's like, I'm pointing at the deer. You know, and I don't see it, Daddy. Like, oh, well, if you look where I'm pointing. And, and that, that's what was happening. John the Baptist is saying, look, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, I'm here to testify. And, and they affirm John, but not him, not Jesus. We, we do the same thing, you know. Uh, we, we, we have this disconnect where we appreciate the witnesses God sends, but we don't believe what they have to say. It's strange. Because God has not stopped sending witnesses. John the Baptist wasn't the last witness that God sent. John the Baptist was unique, so, so in some ways he's unique. He was the forerunner to Christ. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the one who called Israel to repentance to unveil Jesus. But, but in other ways, God has still called up witnesses. The, the apostles, the 12 apostles, were set apart to be witnesses. Uh, John, who wrote this gospel, uh, it was a witness to Christ. The, the New Testament are the writings of the eyewitnesses. And so, you know, they're one of the most wonderful, the central historical record we have of who Jesus was and what he did. This is their testimony. But, but it didn't just stop with the apostles. God continues to raise up witnesses. Uh, in a sense, every Christian who really knows the Lord is a witness. You know, in the book of Revelation that uh, John was to later pen, the same John who wrote John's gospel, he eventually had a revelation and he wrote it down. And, and one of the ways that the John often describes Christians in Revelation, one of the phrases he uses is that they're the ones who, who held to the word of the testimony, that, that we are those who testify to the truth. And Christians in Revelation sometimes suffer, but, but they show their faithfulness by holding to the testimony. Even think about the, 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 the symbolism in Revelation. What, what is the symbol for churches in Revelation? They're lamps. They're lampstands. You know, John the Baptist was a lampstand. He was a lamp. He wasn't the light itself, but he testified to the light. Churches are the lampstands before God's throne in which the, the light of the Holy Spirit burns. It's, so there's a sense in which we as individual Christians and it, and corporately as a church are here to testify to the truth of Jesus. You know, people should see come into our church or, or come to our Bible study or hang out with us as church members, and they should see the way we interact with each other and the way we treat each other, the way we live together in community, and they should say, yeah, I, this, this is different. What, what is this? I, you're showing me something here I don't, I don't see when I go to work. There's something happening here that doesn't happen at my family's Christmas or Thanksgiving, you know. You guys are strangers, and yet your family, what is this? So there ought to be a testimony that, that shines forth. Isn't it funny, though, how we see the, testi- the testifier, the, the messenger, but we disregard the message? You know, I do funerals as a pastor. I do a funeral for a grandma. I do a funeral for a grandpa. 
good Christian people who have loved the Lord and been bright lights for their families and have made a difference in their family. And family members stand up at those funerals and they say, oh, we're going to miss grandma. We're going to miss grandpa. Boy, they had such a strong faith. They made such an impact on their family. And, And the family members will stand there and talk about what great faith grandma and grandpa had. But they won't believe it themselves. And, and, you know, you could just imagine grandma and grandpa in heaven going, it's not about me. Like, I tried to tell you for decades it's about Jesus. And, and, you know, we love grandma and grandpa. But, like, they were trying to point us to Christ. That's why they were in your life. And you missed it. We miss it because we're, we're focused on the wrong thing. You know, sometimes people, you know, are complimentary about a sermon I do. Oh, Jeremy, I appreciate that sermon. You know, it's, it, it's so clear. I like how animated you are, you know. You know, it's, it's, I, it's engaging. I can listen. And, you know, thanks. That's encouraging. But that's not what gets me out of bed to do this. I, I'm not, like, fishing for affirmation. You know, I mean, of course it feels good to be affirmed. Who doesn't like it? an attaboy? But that's not what gets me out of bed. What's exciting to me is I want to tell you about Jesus. That's what drives me to get all animated. I, I just get carried away because it's about Christ, the Savior. And so, so I want you to see him. That's who, that's who you're here to see. That's why you're here this morning is to hear about Christ. Has God put people in your life who have been really bright lights, people who have not just talked the talk but walked the walk, People that you look at and you're like, that wasn't a phony. That was a real Christian. I admire them. Like, don't stop there. Like, look at where they were pointing you. They were pointing you to the Lord. They're pointing you to Christ. Maybe you're sitting next to one of those people. Maybe there's someone you can think of who pointed you there. Thank God for those people. Let's be those people as Christians who who are faithful testifiers because we're part of God's evidence to the world. We're part of God's case that he's making for the reality of the Son of God is the integrity of our lives and the way we we shine for Christ. So that's the first testimony. The first one is the witness, the witnesses like John the Baptist who God raises up. The second line of evidence Jesus gives are his works. So we have the witnesses like John, and then we have Jesus' works. Look at verse 36. He says, I have a testimony weightier than that of John. Wow, bigger than John. This one's even better. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish in which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Not only look at the witness, look at the work. You know, Jesus did miracles. This whole sermon was launched because he healed some guy on the Sabbath day. He did amazing, miraculous things. He, he did signs and wonders. That, that's part of his story, and it's, it's amazing. Um, and he healed this guy on the Sabbath, but there was a disconnect. You know, the, the people, just like there's a disconnect between the, the messenger and the message, there's a disconnect here because they saw him do the miraculous sign, but all they could say was, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Don't heal people miraculously on the Sabbath. It's like, do you hear what you're saying? <laughs> heal people miraculously? Check it out. That's incredible. Shouldn't you be amazed at the miracle? But instead, there's a disconnect. They miss it. In fact, Jesus did miracles, and people say, well, he, he must be like 
like a demon-possessed guy. That must be how he has that power. It's interesting. This is always fascinating to me, but if you look at some of the rabbinic commentary on Jesus after the time of Jesus, as the rabbis you know, spoke against the Christian heresy and, and as they wrote against Christianity, uh, one of the things they consistently, when, when they mention Jesus, they always typically refer to him as a sorcerer. Isn't that interesting? Like, he did weird things we couldn't explain, but it's because he was using evil magic. So, so even his opponents, his, in their historical writings, they, they testify to that these things he did. This seems to be something that you find in writings about Jesus that everyone acknowledges he did things people couldn't explain. Jesus is alive today. He still does miracles. You know, I would not, um, I would not self-identify myself as a Pentecostal or a charismatic. That's not really kind of like my theological train. But man, I believe Jesus heals today. Like I pray for people to be healed because God heals people. It's, it's not a formula. You can't make him do it. It's not like if you pray this way, it'll happen. But man, I pray. And you know what? I know people who've had healing from God because they prayed, because God still heals. It's, he can do whatever he wants to do. He's sovereign. So, so you know, his power is still at work. His, his miracles go on. But I'll tell you, even more than his miracles, you know, he talks about the work the Father has given me to finish. Even greater than that, this looming ahead in John, is the work on the cross. Jesus didn't say it is finished till he died on the cross. That's when it was finished. It wasn't finished when he did his last miracle. And he's like, okay, I'm done healing people. No, no. It was finished when he died. The greatest work of all, the most amazing work that should blow our minds and, and convince us of the truthfulness of Jesus is that he died on the cross for sinners. He died as that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who had ever, who's ever heard of a story like this? I'll tell you, the gospel story is like from another planet. It's so amazing that the holy God would respond to a rebellious world by sending his own son to die in the place of sinners so they could be forgiven. You know, it's, it's like, you know, once upon a time there was a really notorious terrorist who was captured and sentenced to death, and just before he was about to be hanged, the president calls up and says, I am issuing a full pardon for this terrorist, and, uh, but, but because I understand what he's done is so heinous that, that it can't just be wiped away, dismissed, uh, because the, the moral demands of justice must be satisfied, I am sending my own son to be hanged on the gallows in place of the terrorist. Put the terrorist on a plane, fly him to the White House. He's going to live in the White House with me. He's going to be my adopted son, and I'm going to write him into my will. You're like, that's dumb. <laughs> that's, that, that wouldn't even be a good movie. It's just, that's just too, it's too far out. It's like so hokey, and like, who would ever do that? It doesn't fit any of the models of this world. And yet that's only like, like a lame illustration of the magnitude of what God has done to purchase a people on the cross. What Christ has done for us. It, it, should, it should rock us. And so when the gospel went out, it, it, it just had such divergent responses. It was stumbling block to the Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. 
But for those who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. There's some people who are like, that's stupid. And other people who are saying, I believe. Where else could this come from? So look at Christ. When you look at the cross, do you see it? Or is there a disconnect? Do you say, okay, that's interesting, but eh, whatever. Or do you see the Savior of the world and the love of God displayed there? So there's the testimony of witnesses. There's the testimony of Jesus' works. And then the last testimony he brings up is, is the Word of God itself. So the witnesses, the works, and then the Word. And you see that in verses uh, 37 to 39. He says, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his Word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. Ironically, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because that you think by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So they studied the word. They studied the scriptures and yet somehow they missed it. There was again that disconnect that took place. Uh, the, the Jewish people were world-renowned for the diligence with which they studied Torah and God's Word. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, they memorized it, they debated it, they dissected it, they analyzed it, they preached on it. They were just immersed in it. And yet somehow, and they were in it because they wanted to possess eternal life. They wanted to honor God and really know Him. And Jesus says, these scriptures testify about me, but you refuse to come to, have, to me to have life. It's like, you, you guys, you've missed the whole point. You've got all the details down, but you missed the main thrust. You, you've missed the forest for the trees. You're so focused in on all these details of the study, and, and yet you don't see that the whole point of scripture is about me, that, that the way to read the Bible, the right glasses to put on are Jesus glasses. And when you put on the Jesus glasses, the Old Testament suddenly it's like 3D. You know, when you go to those 3D movies and it's kind of fuzzy and you put those glasses on and things jump out at you. Put those Jesus glasses on and let it all come to life and let it have depth and breadth and meaning. You know, just think about the, the works of Moses. Look at verse 45. This is a low blow. He says, do not think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Oh, that was dirty. Because these people, I mean, they're Moses' people. They study the law of Moses. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to say anything. Moses is going to do all the work on the judgment day. He's going to be the prosecutor. Wow. Because if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, verse 46, because he wrote about me. You know, think about the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Think about how many verses, how many chapters, how many laws are devoted in those writings to describing how to do animal sacrifices. My kids right now are, um, and I are trying to read through, do the read through the Bible thing, and we're doing. My kids are doing it like on a two-year schedule, so I try to read through the Bible in a two years time span. And right now we're like in Leviticus, Numbers, you know, that place where most people give up trying to read through the Bible. And uh, and my kids were asking me, they're like, Dad. Why are all these verses in here about killing animals? Ah, oh, just, you know, you're reading Leviticus is like reading Macbeth. It's, it's just, you're wading in blood, you know, the whole thing. It's like, 
killing all these animals, and you've got to do it this way, and you've got to use this kind of animal, and you've got to deal with the body parts this way, and then you do this with the blood. It's, it's so, you know, all these animal sacrifices, why? Why over and over and over and over and over the animal sacrifices? It's so that when John stood on the bank of a river and said, look, the Lamb of God it would have a profound significance to those who heard him. All the light bulbs should have gone, bing, Lamb of God. Because God had drilled into Israel's ritual that he is holy, that sin violates his holiness, that sin deserves punishment, but that God is merciful and he allows a substitute sufferer to take the death that we deserve. I mean, it's it's there think about the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That's a crazy story. You know why it's crazy? Because God commanded Abraham to perform child sacrifice. Like where else does God require that in the Bible? It's this weird kind of moment where God doesn't act like God, it seems. You, you You know, the people who offer child sacrifices are the Canaanites, and God told Israel to go wipe them out. Go wipe out the Moabites and the Ammonites because they sacrificed their children in the fire to their gods, Molech and Chemosh. That's what the evil pagans do. And that whole culture has become cancerous and just needs to be cut out and extinguished. That's how bad that is. So this is God's attitude toward child sacrifice. But then he says to Abraham, go sacrifice your son. It's, It's so strange. But he gets there puts his son Isaac on, the, on the, the, the stone and ties him up. And, and there's his son, his only son of the promise. And just before he lands the fatal blow into Isaac's chest, he stopped. God says, stop. And he looks over and there's a substitute ram in the bush. I mean, it, it's just dripping with Christ, pointing forward to him. It's an amazing story. We can go on and on and on. You know, if you're into this and and you want to kind of think about the Old Testament more, here's a homework assignment. Here's kind of an easy one to get you into this. Go home. I want you to open up Isaiah chapter 53 when you get home. Here's what I want you to do with Isaiah 53. I want you to read it once. It'll take you about a minute and a half. Just read through it. Zip. Okay? Then I want you to go back and read it again and put the Jesus glasses on and see if the 3D thing doesn't just happen in a marvelous way. It's just so much of the Old Testament points forward to the Lord Jesus. He is the interpretive key to the whole Scripture. Isn't it amazing, though, how we can diligently study the Scriptures and still miss Jesus? How do we do that? Just like we disconnect people who witness about Jesus from the truth of Jesus, just like we disconnect his works from being amazed at them, we, we, we disconnect his word from him. And so we diligently study the scriptures. You know, people do that today. All kinds of people diligently study the scriptures. Uh, some of you may be uh, familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe you have family members who are one. Maybe you've done some study with them. You know, they, they get teased because they go around knocking on doors. But, you know, let me say one thing in defense of Jehovah's Witnesses. Man, those people study. Like, you've got to respect that. <laughs> like, they study. You know, they, they get into the Word, and they, they read it, and they memorize it. You can't go door-to-door half-cocked, all right? 
You're going to go door to door. You've got to like know where you're going to take people in the Bible. I respect that, that they study. But then, like, how do you come out of all that study and deny that Jesus is God? Something happened. There was a disconnect. You studied, that's great, but then you somehow got through John and you didn't come away on your knees before Jesus. What's up with that? Our Muslim neighbors, they're people of the book, those who are serious. You know, we often think about Muslims in the Quran, but I don't know if you know, you know, Muslims affirm the Old Testament prophets. Muslims affirm the, the New Testament, the, what they call the Injil. They, they, they affirm these prophets as from God, but somehow they, they come away saying that Jesus is only a prophet and that he actually didn't die on the cross. Like, how did that happen? Somehow there's a disconnect. There, there are professors who have PhDs in New Testament, theology, Old Testament, ancient languages, church history, People who, in their PhDs studies alone, have read more theology than you will ever read in your life. People who are way smarter than you, way smarter than me, isn't saying much. People who uh, who really you know have studied these things and they teach at places like Harvard and Dartmouth and you know Duke and Oxford and Cambridge. Brilliant people who come away with all their brilliance and all their study don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. How can that happen? You know, it's really scary. How do I, as an evangelical Christian, come away from all my studies of God's word without my heart warmed toward Christ? It happens. I study. I finish the Bible in a year. Check. But Like, my heart is cold toward Christ. Sometimes we, even we who do believe in Jesus, who do, would affirm all that, yep, he's the son of God, he has eternal life, I believe in him, maybe you have eternal life, and and yet we can still come away, like, puffed up from our studies, or armed to go argue with people, or or self-righteous and arrogant and legalistic. But, but our hearts are so cold toward the Lord. You know, we study and study, and we go to Bible studies, and we listen to really long sermons, and, uh, you know, all of these things. And our lives are just riddled with sin that we won't face and repent of. And we, we just look down on people, and, and we don't have that, that savor of love and grace in our life that we should have. You know, Moses would, would spend time talking to God in the tent of meaning, and he would come out, and his face would be shining with the glory of God. And somehow we should come out of our time in the Word from meeting with the Lord, and our face should be shining with the glory and the joy and the love of Christ. And sometimes we come out of studying his Word, and all we have in our face is self-righteous, you know, scowls. That's wrong. Like something, we missed it. <laughs> we got a lot of knowledge but we missed the Savior. It happens because it's all about him. So why do these disconnects happen? This is pattern of disconnecting. Why, does, why do we experience it? Could it be that the root problem isn't that we need more evidence? I mean, maybe we do. Maybe there's questions we still have to ask, and maybe we can get some answers to those questions. But what if at the end of the day, 
It's not about I just need 5% more data and then I'll believe. What if the problem in the final analysis doesn't ultimately reside here? What if the problem is something here? That it's our hearts that don't want to give in and we use our head as, as a bit of an excuse. Look at verse 41. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name. You do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? You know, the problem was they didn't love God. They loved themselves. They loved each other. They loved the praise of men. They wanted people to think well of them because they loved themselves. They loved their sin. In the final analysis, they didn't love God. They loved themselves. You know, that's what I came to realize when I became a Christian. I became a Christian when I was like a young teenager. And, uh, you know, I didn't have some crazy conversion story like I used to be you know, uh, a a drug-selling tycoon, and then, you know, I got converted by some dramatic thing. I was just a teenager. I was a typical kid, not a big conversion story. I was in, you know, my mom started taking me to this church. I started hearing the gospel, and I started being confronted with the claims of Christ, and, and I was like, wow, God, I feel like God is speaking to me here in his word. But, you know, the thing I didn't want to do, the thing that held me back is I just didn't want to follow Christ. And it's not because I needed some more data. For me, finally, it was, I don't want to give up control. You know, I don't want to, first of all, have to say, I am a sinner in need of the Lamb of God to take away my sins. I want to think of myself as my own Savior, as the one who is righteous. And I don't want, I don't want to give up control of my life. I don't want a Savior, and I don't want a Lord. I am Savior and Lord of my own life. It, it was as if I had been brought to the brink of this river and, and I was standing on this sort of bank looking down this river, and this river was just roaring by at high speed. And I knew if I jumped into that river, if I jumped into Christ, I would just get swept away, and I didn't know where it was going to go. And so for me, it wasn't just data. It was, it was my heart. I didn't love God enough to, to surrender my life to him and to accept him. And so I stood on that bank. So you know what God did? Poof. <laughs> I wish I could say I became a Christian because I intellectually did a cost-benefit analysis and weighed the arguments. It's not how it worked. Like, you know, that might get you to the edge, but at the end, you need a mighty wind. Just blow you in. You need the Holy Spirit to blow on your hearts. You know, you really don't need someone else to stand here and tell you about Jesus. You've had plenty of witnesses. What you need is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to see a miracle. You, to, you know, you think, well, I would believe if, if you would just, you know, raise the dead or something. Yeah, I don't think you would, actually. I think it'd be amazing, but you wouldn't necessarily believe. What you need, the miracle you need and that I need, is for my heart to be born again. I don't need to hear one more sermon to know what I have to do to receive Christ. If you heard this sermon this morning, if you're listening... I'm telling you what, you've got all the scripture you need to come to Christ. You don't need one more verse. You don't need one more sermon to come to Jesus. What you need and what I need is for that word to reside within. Like Jesus says, you don't have the word of God within you. But the good news is Jesus 
is still pushing people. He's still blowing people. And so look to him. Put your faith in him. Confess that your sin is so bad, it's not just things you do. It's that I'm not even able to do what I'm supposed to do. It's just, it's bad. I'm caught in my sins. And cry out to the Savior and know that Jesus is still alive. Come and experience Christ and know the reality of his power in your life. Take that step of faith by his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would do whatever it takes, even if it means you've just got to shove us into the kingdom, even if it means you've got to grab us by the lapels and haul us over the line. Lord Jesus, we pray, show yourself to us. We thank you for your witnesses. We thank you for your testimonies. And we thank you that in the end, it does come down to a step of faith, that you call us to faith in you, to let go even of our own need for answers. And Lord, to just trust you. And God, I pray that you would grant that gift of faith to each of us. I pray, Lord, especially even for us as Christians, that we would press on to know you more, that our Christianity would be a living relationship. Lord, I pray that our faces would shine more and more with you because we dwell with you and commune with you. Lord, we just confess that our, our faith in you and our love for you is so weak. We're like, we're like people laying in a bed in an ICU hooked up to machines. We're spiritually alive, but we're so pathetically weak. God, we pray, heal us and give us greater faith so that we might not just barely open our eyes to look to you, Lord, but that we might jump up out of our beds and praise you and serve you. So, Lord, I pray for the Christians here, starting with myself, that you would strengthen us with grace so that we might be people who are vibrant testimonies, not just in our words, but with our lives and with our love. So, Lord, pour out your power on this church for your sake, not for ours. For the sake of those who need to know you, Lord, pour out your power, pour out your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.